0: From The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is lgbtq and a. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to Dr. Charles Silverstein, whose 1973 presentation before the American Psychiatric Association led them to declassify homosexuality as a mental illness. And you know, with how much has changed for our community since then, I think we can forget what a crucial game-changer it was for the movement to have it officially declared that the way we live and love is not a mental illness, it is not something that needs or even can be cured. And this fight, everything that led up to it, including Charles' role in it, is a subject of a really fantastic new documentary called Cured that premieres on PBS on October 11th, if you want to check that out. And of course, like any movement in history, Charles wasn't acting alone. For many years, who's part of the Gay Activist Alliance, or the GAA. This was an early activist group that was founded about six months after the uprising at Stonewall. Charles was a part of their protests and zaps, before eventually going on to co-write the 1977 landmark book, The Joy of Gay Sex. This book, along with being banned and burned, seized by custom agents around the world, This book really did educate generations of gay men about all aspects of gay life, sexual and not. So today we're talking about all of this with the now 86-year-old Dr. Charles Silverstein. Here he is. I want to start off by talking about your role in helping to declassify homosexuality as a mental disorder. But before we get to that, can you talk about why originally it was classified as that and any evidence or assumed facts that backed that up?
1: Well, everything about sexuality is based upon the moral beliefs of a society. And since homosexuality had been condemned as immoral, it it just automatically was assumed that it should go into the diagnostic and statistical manual as a mental disorder everything that wasn't basically a heterosexual missionary position motivated by reproduction was considered abnormal and homosexuality since you know you know, invariably you waste your seed was considered ipso facto a disorder
0: And so for you, when you were getting your PhD and, you know, being taught this, did you initially believe that? I was very confused
1: then. When I was getting my PhD, I was in the closet because I certainly was not going to let anyone in the program know that I was gay because that would get me thrown out. There was a, a period before I got to college where I wanted to change and I went into therapy for the purpose of changing. Obviously, it didn't work. And it never works. But it was what most people did in those days.
0: I mean, now we refer to that as conversion therapy. But back then, it was just considered therapy, right? Yes. If you were homosexual and in therapy, the only purpose was to be quote-unquote cured.
1: Yes, to change you into someone who was quote normal, meaning heterosexual. And that that was my goal. All I accomplished is I had the opportunity of going to bed with some nice women who thought I was an appropriate match, but I
0: wasn't. eventually you did, you know, make this presentation before the American Psychiatric Association. Yes. Was there a debate about who would make the presentation, or was it assumed that there's just kind of your field and you would do it?
1: Since I was a psychologist, or at least working on my PhD in psychology, and it was decided that I should make the professional presentation, meaning the presentation of all the research and clinical work that um, suggested that homosexuality was not a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. And then Jean O'Leary, who had been a nun but was no longer a nun, she left uh, the church, she would make the presentation from the point of view of ordinary people about discrimination in the city of New York. So it was was a very well-organized presentation. We knew what everybody was going to do.
0: And because this was identified as a goal of the movement, it wasn't just like you guys thinking this would be good, like, on your own. No, well,
1: it has been started years before. Frank Kameny gets some of the, the credit for that. There are a number of psychiatrists who also were pushing to have homosexuality eliminated. Like every social movement, you always stand on the shoulders of the people who came before. Frank Kameny was not a part of this. Frank was a difficult person to get along with. Everyone who knew him would tell you that. He was a fierce fighter, but he could not have worked with us, and we we wouldn't have had him helping us.
0: I think we like people like Frank Kameny, like Jim Obergefell, Amy Stevens most recently, you know, we connect historic events with people. Were you then connected with this? Like, was it your name? I guess what I'm asking is like, did you feel like a, like a celebrity in the gay community?
1: <laughs> in, in some places, my name is, is connected with it.
0: But I, I
1: really do like to say these changes that occurred, not because of any one person at any one time, but it's really the sum total of a number of people who fought, sometimes against the enemy, sometimes with each other, because we had lots of that. There is no one person that can claim responsibility for these changes. We worked together. I was chosen to make this this presentation because I knew the research, I knew the data, and I could present it well.
0: And so during this time you were a member of the Gay Activist Alliance, the GAA, which was created in the wake of Stonewall. Right. I think it's an early gay organization that is important and yet not as well known. I just wonder if you can describe the group and what their goals were.
1: They were a radical organization. Let me contrast it with uh, Frank Kameny. When Frank had demonstrations, Everybody had to be a good boy and good girl. There was a dress code. Men had to wear suits, women, dresses. Shoes had to be shined. GAA was quite different. We weren't good boys, we were bad boys. And we wanted to be bad boys. And therefore, we were out there, not dressed nicely, but dressed in ordinary clothes to make as much trouble as possible. What Frank and his group wanted to do was knock on the door of society and say, let us in. Oh, please let us in. What the radical movement in the early 70s did was not to say that we want to knock on the door. We wanted to fucking break it down and march through and tell society, we're changing you. You're going to change and you better live with it. It was a much more aggressive, but not violent. Aggressive, but not violent. And so what we did, we had these, what were called zaps. And the zap was a demonstration where we would go to an organization and we'd break it up. And we, we found that professional organizations are the biggest sissies around. I did not know, they really called us sissies, but they were the real sissies. They, they couldn't, they didn't know how to deal with us. They would be having a meeting and some of our members would get up and say, we're taking over. And they would step to the side because they didn't know what to do. And that's why we kept winning everywhere we went.
0: You say that the members of the GAA were the strangest group of people you'd ever met. Um, wh- why is that? That was at the firehouse.
1: You see, our center was the firehouse on Worcester Street, because it was a place that we thought of as a place of liberation, that anyone could come in. You had to walk through the door. You didn't need a membership card. You didn't have to pay any dues. People who were oppressed could feel self-identified and walk in. Therefore, we had some lunatics that used to walk in through the door. And that's that's what I was talking about. We, We had some very strange people that came in. And they were all, no one was ever thrown out.
0: This was the firehouse that was four floors in Soho, right? Yes, Who owned that building or like paid the rent?
1: I don't know who owned the building. It was called the firehouse because it was a firehouse. A real honest look of this firehouse, but no longer held the engines. It's not like there was a lot of fancy furniture. There were, I mean, the furniture were the rejects from the street. I don't know who laid out the money to get the place. It was then paid for through dues, not dues, but um, through a Saturday night dances where people paid $2 to come to the dance and all the soda or beer that you want for the night. And through that, they they paid the rent.
0: Because the group, I mean, was an activist organization, but it also had this like social component. Four dances, four events. Yes,
1: it has a big social component. And that was really very important. You know, at the dances, there would be a thousand guys there dancing. In the firehouse? Yeah. Wow. Easy, a thousand. The meetings, the general meetings were like Bedlam, would have two or three hundred people there. And it, it was mostly a young crowd. But there were older people who were watching us and appreciative that we were there. But since they were older, they had more secure jobs that they had to worry about.
0: When you say younger, are you saying like teenagers or like 20s and 30s?
1: No, 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 no. uh, Late teens, 20s, early 30s.
0: Oh, and so to your point, the older people had established jobs and it couldn't be found out that they were gay.
1: Right, that had to be afraid of. And so, for instance, sometimes photographers would come in to take pictures of us, and it would be announced that a photographer is going to be wherever. If you don't want your picture taken, come and stand on the other side.
0: So it's a really big emphasis on discretion. Right. One
1: of the primary problems about being gay in those days was a sense of loneliness and isolation. You could go to the baths and have sex with a guy and not know his name. You could go over to Central Park here and go to the bridal path and give or get a blowjob. Or you could go downtown to the trucks and do the same thing. But there wasn't a sense of affiliation between people. What GAA did was allowed gay men primarily to get to know each other in a setting other than just sex. You got to know each other as people. You got to know each other's names. You might visit each other during the week. Now, it may seem strange today, but in those days, we didn't do that.
0: I've never heard anybody articulate it like that before. So, like, when I moved in New York City a couple of years ago, I was like, okay, where are my gay friends? And you're saying that during those days, in the early 70s, that... There was no conception of that. It was just kind of like one-off experiences, not a community of people.
1: It it was like Boys in the Band, that group of of self-hating gay men who were very jealous of each other and who were very sad. With GAA, and there were similar organizations in other cities as well, you got to know people as people. You laughed together. You went on zaps together, cursing the police or the city council or whoever you wanted to curse. And you had that sense of camaraderie.
0: Wow.
1: One day, at the end of the dance, we had a demonstration. We walked from the firehouse over to the building of a councilman who was holding up a civil rights bill. There were a thousand guys walking up the street and over to his building to shout as loud as we can at 2 o'clock in the morning and wake everybody up. That was our goal. In fact, he wasn't in his apartment. We knew he wasn't. It didn't make any difference. The point is, was, was to have this demonstration, have the police show up, have the reporters and cameramen show up, and make a big simus out of it. Wait, wait, what? Big simus. Big, A big deal. I thought
0: you said you're Jewish. No, I am. I was clarifying what you said.
1: <laughs> we were like an organism in the street, marching up with a sense of camaraderie and friendship with each other. That sort of thing was different than what had come before.
0: That kind of reminds me of something you wrote about in your book, For the Ferryman, about how during the earliest pride marches, you would walk up to people and you greeted them by saying, happy birthday. You said it was as if you'd all been reborn and this was now your birthday. And I just had never heard that detail before. Oh yeah,
1: we all did that. We did that every year. Not only that, but at the firehouse, at the Saturday night dances, there would be an officer at the door. And when the person would come in, The officer would be there to say, welcome, and shake his hand. But you see, things like that were very important. They were meant to fight the isolation we experienced in those days. I mean, for instance, when I walked through those doors the first time, and someone came over to me and shook my hand and said, welcome, I was shocked. You know, the gay person in those days wanted to hide here coming over and
0: talking to me. And then in June, you would say, happy birthday, to greet each other.
1: Yes, we would shake each other's hands and say, happy birthday. That changed when it became a parade. When it it changed from a march to a parade, the whole ideology changed. We would walk up Fifth Avenue to Central Park. And in Central Park, we had what was called a gay lying down on the grass and, you know, people would be making out. There were some speeches that were being made that no one listened to. But then when it changed so that it began on Central Park West and March downtown and there was the, the sale of beer and all the rest of that, the whole temper changed.
0: Hearing you say all this, it it makes sense to me that, when you went on to then co-author The Joy of Gay Sex with Edmund White, it makes sense that that book, yes, is about sex, but it's also about community, how to find and build queer community in in a non-sexual aspect. It's there, you know, on every page.
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, when Ed and I first sat down to talk about the book, and we made a list of the entries, it was quite clear that a majority of the entries were not about sex. It was about community, and it was about relating to each other. While most people, you know, think of all the the dirty pictures, what we always thought our greatest contribution was is trying to write something that we would have wanted when we were kids, and that would be something more than just sex. That would be about community.
0: I was so surprised by the use of the word fucking as a verb. Can you talk about the decision to use that word instead of any euphemisms or just anything else?
1: As a matter of fact, the, the publisher of Crown, Crown's name went on it here. He called me in. He said, why well, did you have to use the word cock? He didn't say fuck, he said cock. As if I didn't know what he meant, I asked him, what word would you want me to use? And he said, well, can't you use penis? And I I said to him, your cock is different than your penis. He said, what's the difference? He said, well, your, your penis is a part of your anatomy, and your cock is what you fuck your wife with. Cock stayed in. Interesting enough, fuck was not objected to, but the word shit was. See, there were were sets of lawyers on both sides of the Atlantic reading all the things we had written. And so we had lawyers there and here, and anyone could raise an objection, and often did.
0: Was that the case in the later revised editions as well?
1: In the later editions, there were no problems of censorship at all.
0: And in those later editions, you added in sections about safe sex and HIV, this was the 90s, this book and the subsequent editions really educated generations of gay men. But for you, there was no book like this. Where did you learn all this when you were coming of age? I would say I learned it on the job. So trial and error. Yeah, with lots of errors.
1: In those days, there simply wasn't much around. You just had to to learn. I remember the first time I had sex with a guy and a big learning experience. I didn't know what the hell I was doing.
0: Fortunately, he didn't. Well, you also label that first sexual experience as the, you know, catalyst for your entire life of work. Yes, yes. You know, You decided at that moment to fight for acceptance. What was it about having sex for the first time that made that spark? Because he was
1: such a nice guy. See, I, I had come to this with a sense of, of shame that I was bad. That's why I went into this psychoanalysis for years and here I, I met someone who was completely different who seemed to like me and who certainly liked his life and the, the, I'd never met someone like that before because I never allowed myself to and that's, that changed things there was this enormous amount of pent up energy Yeah. and the guy is waiting to just explode. So exciting.
0: You know, today, open relationships and non-monogamy seems to me more prevalent than ever. Is that true, or are more people simply just talking about it more than ever before?
1: Well, it's an interesting question you ask. We certainly have more relationships that are considered to be open relationships. We have more polyandry. In days gone by, You had less of them openly, but whether they existed anyway is an interesting question, and I don't think any of us have the answer. In other words, today, what they are, they certainly are more honest, whereas back in my day, 100 years ago, uh, people would, would lie. Now, you know, to what extent these relationships survive, I don't know.
0: So while I'm asking questions that maybe don't have an answer, I have one more, (laughs) which is that in your book, Man to Man, you have a chapter called Fathers, Sons, and Lovers about the father's importance in one's sexual development. Is it wrong for me to connect that to the prevalence of the word daddy now in today's culture?
1: You know, there is a whole daddy scene in gay culture. Not sure how large it is, but there's certainly a daddy scene and always has been. So this is not new. It is not new. There was even such a magazine called Daddy Magazine. I have a couple of old copies here somewhere.
0: Because it's now used kind of like we use like bears, otters. Daddy is now part of that. Yes. Yes. I guess I think that, like, we make so many jokes about daddies, like, nowadays, and I wonder, like, what is the underlying, like, reason why that has, like, a connection to gay men, specifically?
1: I think some of it has to do with issues of masculinity, and daddy is more masculine. Some of it has to do with power issues. You know, one of the things that's true in certainly gay male relationships is that when two guys have sex, there is a power relationship between them. But it's a voluntary one. You know, we talk about tops and bottoms, and there's a power relationship there. Now, some would argue that it's the bottoms that have the real power, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. But society in general doesn't look at it that way, because it more matches heterosexual sex.
0: Now that you're 86 years old, how has your own relationship to sex changed?
1: Well, when you get to be 86, you don't have a lot of sex. Which is all right. I mean, there is something about uh, testosterone levels going down. That's not the only thing that goes down. Gravity has its will take its will on you. I'm still sexually interested, but I have less opportunity. And of course, to tell you the truth, I don't really want to date anyone. I don't want to go through that, been there, done that.
0: Regarding dating, in in your memoir, you write about you know your great love of over twenty years, William.
1: Yes, yes.
0: I only bring him up now because the name on the screen for your your computer says William on the Zoom.
1: Oh, I, I see. It's it's a password.
0: Oh, that's your password. That's a okay. password. <laughs> Sorry, I just... It, that's a password. Oh, a password. I have 12,000 <laughs> Oh, passwords. oh, oh, gotcha.
1: <laughs> My passwords have passwords. I can't keep up with them. But if you're asking me, do I think about him, I would say every day. I don't stop loving him because he's dead. Yeah. Just miss him.
0: And so losing him, is that why you say you have no interest in going through that again?
1: No, no, it's because of how much work is involved. I have close relationships and I'd love to have a close relationship with another person, sure. But I wouldn't want to go through all the drama that one goes through to have a lover, husband, whatever.
0: I mean, last question about your sex life, but sex was such a big part of your life in your adulthood for so long. Now that you do you have it less frequently is that do you feel like a part of you is missing or is it just that's like what happens and that's life
1: both of them actually I, I i miss miss some of that but also there's a lot of disappointment that goes along with it and it's a lot of pain i can do without that you know i i found that the more in love two people are the more easily it is for them to hurt each other. So if I have any kind of other relationship, I don't want it to be that hurtful. Now I have a number of very good friends, very close friends, and we take care of each other. I know that if I need something, I know all the people I can call on, and they know they can call on me. Would I like something more? Yeah. But what I would like is not what you expect.
0: What is that?
1: What I would have liked is when I was younger would have been the opportunity of having children. Something that some days are possible today. But I would have liked to have had kids. I've worked a lot of my life with kids, read summer camps and the Boy Scouts.
0: I like kids.
1: That's what I, what I regret more than anything else. You didn't expect that one, did you?
0: I feel like it's like, I have like a simple question, but like what was stopping you from having kids? It was
1: legally impossible in those days. Oh. You didn't know that? You you, you give a child to fags? That that, that didn't
0: happen in those days. So it was not even a discussion?
1: It was not even a discussion. Today, gay people can adopt children. Sometimes you make arrangements, have a female friend making love to a turkey based that that sort of thing. But in those days it really was unthinkable. The sex was of sex was still against the law. The sodomy prohibition didn't come down to I remember it was the Virginia case that finally went to the Supreme Court. But before then it was against the law. Having sex was against the law. They were very restrictive years. Now I'm glad that younger generations are more free. That's what we were fighting for.
0: I I mean, intellectually, like, it's easy to acknowledge how different things were back then. And yet I still find myself being taken aback with each new detail that I learn. So I really do appreciate you being here and for the fantastic conversation.
1: I'm glad I, I, I
0: was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And that was Dr. Charles Silverstein. You can learn more about him and his work in the new documentary coming out that's called Cured, and it airs on PBS on October 11th. And then if you want to hear more about these early struggles for queer and trans rights, I recently got to speak to Miss Major Griffin Gracie, who is a legendary elder in the trans community. Nobody
1: understands it to whereby a girl can get to this age. I do good to be here. Most girls don't make it past 30.
0: That full interview with Miss Major is in our podcast feed from February, so scroll all the way up, or you can click the link in our show notes. Special thanks this week to Richie Jackson. Richie is the author of the very good book called Gay Like Me, and he let me borrow his copy of The Joy of Gay Sex to prepare for this interview. You know, passing this book from gay hand to gay hand is a great gay tradition, so we were very happy to be able to continue that. We're brought to you by The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I'll see you next week with a member of the U.S. Senate. See you then. Bye.